and in Luke 9, Jesus feeds some people, then he takes his disciples on a field trip, and then he has a freaky hike with a couple of his friends, okay? And I'm just going to explain this to you, because you're going to be shocked actually how much it has to do with our lives. And let's start with the feeding of people. This is out of Luke chapter 9, verses 10 through 17. Let me read this for us. When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. Jesus is always getting stopped. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed all of those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away. You can almost sense the exasperation in their voice, like, get rid of these people, okay? So they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. We got nothing. He replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we, actually it was a little boy, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, which would have been impossible. About 5,000 men were there. They only counted the men. Very patriarchal, silly. Okay, so there's a lot more people than even that. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. So they did that. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. It was a picnic going to happen here. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to all of the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Such a cool story, and this story actually has layers to it. And the first layer is historical. Notice once again that Luke uses the number 12 in this story. You might remember a couple of weeks ago in a sermon, I told you that numbers are important in the Bible. And he uses the number 12 repeatedly, and it's on purpose. The number 12 was the number of all the tribes of Israel, God's people. So when he says, hey, there were 12 basketfuls of leftovers that were gathered, it's a subtle way for Luke to say, hey, this isn't just a nameless, faceless crowd, a mob that we're talking about here. These people, like all of us, are included in the people of God. They are deeply loved by God. The whole book of Luke, in fact, is all about inclusion and saying to us, that everybody's invited to the party, which is kind of the motto of this church, okay? So I love that. The second layer has to do with the miracle itself. Being a follower of Jesus, Jesus can be a wee bit embarrassing at times. You have to admit that. Because when your friends talk to you, oh, you love Jesus, you go to church and stuff, and they ask you, well, what do you do at church? You have to answer them by saying, well, we sing to a God we can't see. We study a 2,000-year-old book. Okay, we hug some people that we may or may not know, okay, and we hug them, and we're fine with that. And then, also, we take a collection. Last month, we took a collection for tampons for some girls in eastern Oregon, okay? And on top of it all, we ask for and we actually believe in miracles. That's why some people try to explain away miracles in the Bible, because that way, when they talk to their friends about Jesus, it seems a little less fantastical. I get it, but I personally believe in miracles. And it's not just because life is just that mysterious and unpredictable. It's because all too often my faith takes me into circumstances that are way beyond my own means to do anything about. Way beyond. And at that point, all of us, and you've been there too, at that point, all of us have a choice. We can either trust God to do what we can't possibly do on our own, 
or we can try to handle it on our own, which is the route most of us choose, and essentially we try to become our own gods. But if history tells us anything, and I'm a history buff, it's this. People make awful gods. They've tried. They're not very successful. So be careful if you choose the latter route. I mean, think about it. God created the, the universe by speaking it into existence. Actually, I believe he sang it into existence because I think he was having way too good of a time to just speak it into existence. I think he was singing and dancing it into existence. But the bottom line is this. God created something out of nothing. So when we come to him, when we're facing difficult circumstances, and we come to him and say, oh, help me, God, please. You've got to help me. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. I don't even know what to think in these circumstances. My pockets are empty. I've got nothing. Oh, I think he loves those moments. And I think his response is always the same. I think his response is always, thank you for your honesty and vulnerability and your dependence on me. And thank you most of all for bringing me your nothing because nothing happens to be one of my favorite substances to use. And then we stand back and we watch God do what we never could have done on our own. All the while thinking to ourselves, wow, when it comes to God, all there is is actually never all there is. I think that's why the Apostle Paul, early Jesus follower, said this, and I'll put it up on the screen. He said, when I am weak, then I am strong. Basically, when I've got nothing, I know God has something. When I get out of the way, I make room for God to be God, and he's way better at being God because, well, he's God, okay? Some of you are facing huge, frightening, difficult, scary things right now. I've talked to some of you about it, and it's, it's hard. And on the outside, you're trying to fool people. On the outside, you look all calm, cool, and collected. In fact, when you came in today and people asked you, how you doing? You said, fine. You're lying through your teeth, but you said, fine. And you've got people fooled. You think that they think you've got it all under control. But on the inside, your mind, your brain is like a spider monkey just flinging its poo all over the place. You are freaking out. But here's the good news. When we get to the place where we see the greatness of the need in front of us, and at the same time we see our own inadequacies, that is such a good place to be because that's the place where miracles can happen. Now, miracles don't always happen, don't get me wrong. That's why they're called miracles and not like commons or ordinaries, okay? But even in the absence of a miracle in that place, you'll be amazed how often God will give you just what you need for your situation or circumstances. He'll give you strength, he'll give you joy, he'll give you hope, he'll give you clarity. And those things might not be labeled miracles, but maybe they should because they're really close to miracles. They're like miracle adjacent, I think. All right, let's move on to the last layer of this story. It has to do with the word community. Some people try to explain away this miracle of Jesus multiplying the sack lunch by saying, oh, that's not what really happened. He didn't feed thousands of people with a little boy's sack lunch. What happened was the little boy came up first and offered his lunch, but then everybody had spent a significant amount of time with Jesus, and Jesus kind of rubbed off on them, and so they felt compelled to share. So as the baskets were passed, the sack lunch baskets, everybody kind of reached under their tunics with that picnic food they were hiding, that chicken they didn't want to share, and they put it in the basket, and everybody had enough. In fact, more than enough. And I say to that, oh my gosh, that would be an even bigger miracle. 
to have the haves in the world actually care about the have-nots? To have thousands of people share their stuff? That's a miracle we need right now. That would be like a complete game and world changer. In our culture, it's easy to get what um, a lot of people, authors, have labeled compassion fatigue. It's what the disciples had. It's easy to be like the disciples and look at all the need in front of us and to just say, Jesus, can you just send these people away? Have them go help themselves, okay? We've got to realize this. The needs in our world are too great for us to handle all by our onesies. It's true. But that's the beauty of community. Notice in this story, they passed the baskets one to another. They didn't try to feed everybody all at once. You simply were responsible for feeding the person sitting right next to you. And when you did, people did that, they had more than enough. Community is the answer. We cannot change the world all by ourselves, but we can love and serve the person that God happens to put in front of us that day. I'm reading a great book by, and some of you are reading it too, by Bob Goff, and he's just a, a great author. Amazing man. He's like a foreign dignitary. He's an, a lawyer, but he's the nice kind. And he does all these things for needy people in the world with nonprofit organizations. He's just an amazing human being. In his book, though, he talked about a neighbor of his, a lady named Carol, who was an elderly widow. And she moved in next door, and they became fast friends. In fact, Bob's young kids adopted her as like an honorary grandma for the family. And they spent a lot of time together. And then one day, Carol called him up, and it was very somber on the phone, which was unusual for Carol, and said, I just went to the doctors, and I have cancer. The dreaded C word was spoken to her. And, and Bob did the most amazing thing. He goes, I'll be right back. And he hung up the phone, and he went to a radio shack, and he bought walkie-talkies, which is weird, but he's weird. He's actually a really weird egg, okay? And he took the walkie-talkie over to Carol and said, hey, turn this on. And for the next several years, they would never talk by phone. They would only communicate through the walkie-talkie. But there was a method to his madness. Look what he writes about it. He puts this much more eloquently than I ever could. I'll read it for you because it's small font. Something happens when you're talking on walkie-talkie. You get the same feeling when you connect two peach cans together with a string. You're both instantly transformed into nine-year-olds. No one has cancer, no one is alone, and no one is terrified anymore. Our houses became tree forts. Walkie-talkies were the cans. Carol and I talked for the next couple of years on the walkie-talkies. These walkie-talkies didn't fix her cancer. Something much bigger happened. She wasn't afraid anymore. I love that story because what he did, he didn't try to fix the whole world's problems. He just made a decision to love the person that God brought right in front of him. There is a great spiritual thinker, one of my favorite theologians in the whole world, that has some really wise things to say about this to all of us. It's Dr. Seuss, and I want to put this up here. He's a great man of God. He says this, To the world you may be one person, but to one person you may be the world. That's a very famous one, but look at this next one. Ooh, I love this one, okay? Unless someone like you cares an awful lot, nothing's going to get better. It's not, okay? That is so true. The story of the miraculous feeding is an invitation to all of us to live our lives caring about the cause or the person that God brings right in front of us. It's an invitation for us to be 
Jesusian type Christian. Okay? Now let's move on to the field trip. Oh, it, it gets better and better. I'm telling you, wait till the freaky hike too. But let's read about the field trip in Luke chapter 9, verse 18 and 20. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowd say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist come back to life, others Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, and specifically he was talking to Peter here, it looks like. Who do you say I am? And Peter answered, because he blurts out a lot of things, you are God's Messiah. You're the chosen one, okay? This famous story is called Peter's Confession, and in Matthew's telling of the story, Matthew adds two significant facts that I want to introduce to you. First of all, that this conversation took place in a place called Caesarea Philippi, and second, that Jesus ends the conversation by saying, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Okay? Now, a little history for you, because you know I'm a history buff. This might be a review for some of you, but new for many of you. Jesus takes his disciples on a field trip here. That's what happened. They'd actually walked the 26 miles from where they were at when the feeding took place to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi, if you've studied your history, was an ancient center that was popular for the worship of the false god Baal. Baal was considered the god of agriculture or the god of agricultural fertility. Every winter when things started to die, there was a myth. And the myth went something like this, that Baal would visit the underworld, specifically going to see his mistress, which was Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was the goddess of sexual fertility. And the myth, sorry to be graphic, but this is how it went. Okay, it's in your history books, you can Google it, all right? The myth went like this. They got together down in the underworld, and Ashtoreth got Baal all worked up, okay, and sexually stimulated, and then he released his swimmers into the world. Welcome to Fifth Avenue Church, by the way, okay? He released his swimmers into the world, and it was actually his sperm that watered the earth and brought spring forth. Ew, okay? Ew part one, and there's a new part two. The myth evolved through the years to being about Pan because the Greek god Pan was more popular to the Greeks than Baal, so they replaced Baal with Pan. And Pan, there was in Caesarea Philippi, it became the location for the, this huge annual festival in honor of Pan that was called Pandemonium. That's where we get that word, okay? The festival, the highlight of the festival was the people made, I'm not making this up, I couldn't, I wouldn't want to, okay? They made a six-foot golden male member. Okay, let's just leave it at that. And they paraded that through the town while committing lewd sex acts. Ew, part two. Okay? A temple was built for Pan on a rock, right next to this rock where a spring of water came out. And springs were considered sacred places. And the opening in the rock where the spring came out was believed to be a place where people could go back and forth, or spirits could go back and forth to the underworld. The opening in the rock was called the Gates of Hell. That's what it was called. So, back to the story. Jesus took his young disciples on a field trip, and they would have been quite young, and he took them to the gates 
of hell, a place that good little Jewish boys like them would have never dreamt of going. That would be like finding out, hey, our youth group just took a retreat and they took all of your kids with them. Where did they go? Well, they went to this really seedy bar on the back streets of Las Vegas. I can't believe Jesus must have got busted by their parents for this, okay? And when Jesus says, here he is at the gates of hell, and when he says, upon this rock I will build my church, many people think he was talking about the truth that Peter confessed. Upon this rock, the truth that I am the Messiah, I am the chosen one, upon that rock of truth I will build my church. And there's some truth to that, okay? Other people think that he was talking about Peter himself, whose name means Petros and rock. Upon Peter, upon you, Peter, upon followers like you, solid, rock-like figures, I will build my church. And again, there's some truth to that. But I believe he was talking about the rock they were standing on, the very gates of hell. Jesus took them to the most wicked, dark, discouraging place they can imagine and said, oh yeah, my light's even going to shine right here in a place you never thought it could. This is so great. It means Jesus plays offense, okay? It means he'll bring his goodness, his love, and his ways into the darkest places, the darkest situations in our lives and in our cities and in our world. And the darkness doesn't stand a chance against him. There's no pit, there's no place, and there's no person that God can't illuminate. That's why I love this church. We're just big enough where people come in every once in a while and you'll turn in the greeting time and you'll look at someone and you'll go, whoa, can't believe they're here today. You've done that, right? And you're looking at them thinking, they're on my unsavable list. They were so far gone, there's no way God could get a hold of them. There's no way God's light could shine in their life, and yet they're here. Chances are they're probably thinking the same thing about you, which is what's funny, right? They're looking at you and going, whoa, they're letting anybody in here, okay? I realize there's a lot of darkness in this world right now. I do. It gets headlines. Hatred and violence seem to be gaining popularity by the day. But that's the point of this story. We get to offer people a better narrative, a better situation, a better way. I'm a baseball fan, but I don't follow it super closely except the Dodgers, okay, because we, we should, okay? Um, until the playoffs, I don't follow the other teams that close. But there was a game the other day that cracked me up. There was a brawl in a baseball game, and baseball brawls are almost usually silly. It's like, that's not a fight. Hit somebody, you know? I mean, they're not even doing anything. But this one escalated into violence, and it was getting pretty ugly. And Chris Bryant, who now has become one of my favorite players, he goes up in the middle of this brawl. You got him, this testosterone-fueled anger, hatred, flying around, obscenities. This brawl is taking place. He recognized a player on the opposing team that he used to play with, and right in the middle, everybody's shoving and hitting and doing all this stuff. He starts to tickle the guy. I kid you not, right in the middle of it all. And he upstaged the brawl with his own little personal tickle fight. And the guy was like, what are you doing? What are you doing? It was the greatest scene. He gave people a better alternative to violence, which is tickling, okay? That's us, people, right in the midst of anger, hatred, violence, sexism, racism, oppression, exclusion. Right at the gates of hell, we get to shine with the brilliance of Christ and show people a better alternative. That's what I love about that story. 
Lastly, let's look at the freak event. Ooh, I love this part. Okay, this is out of Luke chapter 9 also, verses 28. Luke chapter 9 is this collection of amazing stories. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James, three of his closest friends, with him, and he went up on a mountain to pray. Okay? As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, his death, which he was about to bring fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving, Jesus as the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. He was just blurting something out. And this was in similarity to what happened at Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son who I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. And then right immediately after that, uh, well, I'll tell you later. Never mind. Okay, well, let's just end right there. This event is called the transfiguration because Jesus was transfigured. He was changed. His, his appearance changed right in front of him. And it's kind of freaky, though, to me, because when I read it, I thought, but he ends up talking to two guys that had been dead hundreds of years. And if that happened to you, you'd go, this is kind of a freaky moment, okay? Right after the event, this is where I was getting to, Jesus walks down this mountain and he heals a little boy. Remember that. It's significant. Now let's fast forward to August 6, 1945. On August 6, 1945, again, you history buffs will know, a nuclear bomb was dropped on Hiroshima, Japan. And the survivors, and there weren't many, the survivors of that event described that event with eerie similarity to the story we just read. They said it all began with a great flash of light. And then there was a cloud, a totally different kind of cloud, but there was a cloud. And after that, um, um, oh, I lost my place. Oh, on, and the bombing happened to take place on August 6th, which interestingly enough in church history, is referred to as Transfiguration Day because it's a day where the church studies this very story that we read today. On that day, a bomb was dropped, and the name of the bomb was Little Boy, okay? And the city was transfigured. It was changed that day. Not for the better, though. 100,000 people instantly died. 100,000 others were injured and died later on. Fast forward to August 31st. On August 31st, New Yorker magazine consisted of only one article, which was very unusual. It was an article labeled Hiroshima, and it was by the award-winning author John Hersey. You can get it online for $2, or you can even just read it online. And it told the story of this bombing through the eyes of several of the survivors. And it sold out in two hours. The entire, the entire magazine sold out in the city in two hours. Albert Einstein alone bought 1,000 copies for himself. And it transformed the way we think about bombings and wars at the time because the story he tells, I'm telling you, it's hard to read the whole article. It is ghastly. It is hell on earth. So we think about two types of transfigurations in the church. 
every August 6th. One that left people dead. One that made them more fully alive. One where the goal was to kill your enemies. One where the goal was to follow Jesus who told us to love our enemies. One where there was an atomic cloud. One where there was a heavenly cloud. One where a little boy was dropped. One where a little boy was healed. And it's really all about the use of power. But it's not about what national leaders do with their power. This is where it gets deeply personal for us. Because all of us have the power to bring about change in this planet. Whether that change is good or whether it's bad. I always think of the verse in Proverbs that says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Even with something as simple as our words, we have the, the power, the ability to bring about change in a person's life. Whether that's speaking life into their circumstances or speaking death. I love the story of the transfiguration. I'm scratching the surface today. There's so many layers to it. But I want us to walk away with one thing today. And that's the desire to be the kind of person who brings about the right kind of change in the world. People say that following Jesus is all about believing. It's not. It's not about believing. It's about becoming. It's about becoming more and more like him in his character every day. Becoming the kind of person whose acts and even such small things as our words brings about the right kind of transformation and change. I'm going to leave you with this quote, and I'll actually leave it up on the board because I hope that you'll kind of commit it to memory. It says this, True power is when you leave a room and people have more hope and joy than when you entered it. That's power. That's the kind of power Jesus had, the power to heal, not to decimate. Let me pray for us today, can I? And then I'll send you off into your Father's Day activities. I want to pray differently, though. This is going to be so uncomfortable for you. Can you stand and hold hands? You germaphobes like me, sorry, my bad. But I just believe we're supposed to pray this prayer as a community. And you can, yeah, you stretch across the aisles if you can. Don't leave anybody. And if you're a germaphobe, just link elbows or touch shoulders or something, or feet, okay, whatever it takes. 